Film runs through our veins and continuously makes us interact with it. I'm your host, Edward Frumkin, and this is Real Print. In this episode, filmmaker Robert Greene shares the limits of the auteur theory, performances in documentary, and collaborating with crew members and participants. Finally, in today's concluding thought, I talk about being open. Some portions are recorded on Zoom, so bear that in mind when you hear the audio and enjoy the show. Thank you very much for taking your time out of your day, Robert. Thank you, Eddie, for having me. It's nice to be here. <laughs> it's so great that I had Stacy on as well as your past students and classmates and now's a great time to speak to you and uh, as I do with all my past guests what was your first film memory first film memory um you know I I had I had a weirdo hippie um mom biker biker hippie mom who demanded that I watch 2001 a space odyssey when I was really young um, and, and she's, I think probably cause she had used a lot of drugs. And so she thought that like, you know, uh, this was a mind expanding, um, piece of art and she didn't really know what it was about or even know anything about movies, but she would just say like, you gotta watch that. You gotta watch that. And I think, I mean, she also took me to Rocky Horror Picture Show, the live performance when I was young and I would go to movies when I was young. I think my first real movie experience was, um, you know, I, she took me to see Star Wars when I was a year old. Um, so in 1977, I was a baby. And I remember I had at some point, which I've since given up a claim to fame that I, I had seen every release of a Star Wars film in the theater. Um, because when I was a kid, I would, go, I would go. And, and I remember like, you know, going for my sixth birthday to see, uh, um, uh, Return of the Jedi and and sort of having like the greatest experience ever with that movie. Um, so I had a lot of mixed up sort of um, early film memories. Uh, you know, I also I remember being obsessed with a couple of VHS tapes that I had. I had Bull Durham on on VHS and I I probably watched that film 50 times at least, maybe more. Um, I could quote the entire film. Um, and, and I also love Transformers the movie, which is Orson Welles' last performance as he plays <laughs> Unicron. Uh, I could, you know, I had a VHS tape of that as well. So, like, a lot of mixed up memories um, a different, of different things uh, that I, I, but somehow I, I don't really have a definitive number one, but those are my, a lot of my childhood movie memories. Mm -hmm. I went to see Splash with my dad, which was really funny to see Splash. Uh, the Daryl Hannah um, mermaid movie with my dad. I don't know why I remember that so vividly, but I, I do. So a lot of, a lot of kid movie memories. I love all the ranges from just the regular age appropriate Star Wars versus a little too young to understand a space Aussie and Rocky Horror picture show. Yeah. I mean, I would say my biggest, the biggest defining um, sort of uh, thing of my life is that uh, age appropriate things were almost never a part of my life. And so I grew up not understanding anything about appropriateness period. Um, and so I, you know, uh, I can thank my mother quote unquote for, for all of that. Um, so, so, so movies were no different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what then inspired you to become a filmmaker? So I, I, I went to, you know, I, 
I think like, you know, growing up, you know, basically poor, you, I, I really had to actively think about like, what did I want my life to be? Right. Like, so I didn't have anyone sort of get giving me any sort of uh, framework of things. So um, I remember, I, 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 you may not believe this, Eddie, but I was a very cute kid. So when, uh -oh. I, when I, I was very, I was, I was an adorable baby. I know that that's probably impossible for you to believe. But when I was a baby, I, um, I had, my mom was like just walking around Kmart or something. And someone said, your, your child's beautiful. Uh, they thought I was a girl, which was a defiant because I had long hair and they thought, so I, a lot of my life, uh, um, people thought I was a little girl, which, which is actually quite beautiful and lovely and, and probably helped me, um, come, come to terms with whoever I am at some point, but they, but they saw, they thought I was really cute. And so I was a Kmart baby. So like, so basically that's like there, there was an old photo studio where they take pictures of kids and then you would sell the photos of, of other kids or whatever. And I was one of the ones that was in a commercial for Kmart. Um, and supposedly that was, you know, I was supposed to get $500 at some point from my deadbeat parents, but of course they never gave me the money. So mom, if you're listening, you owe me $500, uh, which a lot of people might be like, no, your parents never owe you any money because of all the money they took. My parents owe me money actually. So I'm, I, I belong in that category. Um, but I just always had that in my mind gr growing up. It was like the only thing I could really be proud of, really, in some ways as a kid. I was like, well, you could be mean to me all you want, but I was a Kmart baby, losers, you know? And and so at some point, I think it was like fourth grade, I started writing and I was good at writing, just sort of like had a natural gift for describing things. And then so the, those sort of combined into like some vague notion of like being in the entertainment business somehow, uh, I went to school originally at North Carolina State University. I went to school for um, for journalism. I thought I was going to go to state for a couple of years and then transfer to Carolina, um, uh, which had a pretty good journalism or still does have a pretty good journalism school. And I thought I was going to be I thought I was going to be a journal journalist. And then I failed all of my journalism classes. And also at the same time, which I know is great to know about your journalism professor. Sorry, Eddie, I should have told you this before. Um, <laughs> but I, but then I also, uh, I met Joe, Joe Gomez and a guy named James Morrison and Maria Promajuri and Tom Wallace. Uh, Maria and Tom wrote, have written one of the definitive film school books um, that, mo that a lot of film schools use as textbooks. So th they're amazing. Jim, Jim Morrison, James Morrison, but we, we called him Jim, uh, was a, a, a preeminent film scholar and a, just a beautiful guy and just really supportive. And Joe Gomez was the, uh, you know, world renowned, recognized scholar on the work of Peter Watkins. Mm -hmm. And they just happened to be all in at North Carolina state. And I fell in love with making movies. And I picked, uh, this guy, Kevin Canoyer was teaching intro to film. And um, I just made a film and I loved it and I loved editing so much. And it was just sort of off to the races at that point. I started writing about movies, making movies, and I just couldn't even I couldn't even really get it out of my side. It's just the first thing that I really felt good about, like editing and making. And um, for me, the, the the big thing was that the, the first film I ever made, the first student film, five minute short film, got into a film festival and I literally have never felt so high in my life, you know, at, and the, the name of the film festival was appropriate for my story. It was called the High Mom Film Festival. 
And I really thought I had made it. Like I was done. Like that's it. You know, uh, the world world world's gonna have to deal with me now because look, I'm a famous filmmaker at the High Mom Film Festival. I just and I just fell in love with it, and I just loved making. And I, but you know, by the time I graduated, um, I had made like a no budget feature that no one's seen. And I've like I've done I did all kinds of things. I made shorts and I sh had screenings that I organized and all kinds of stuff. I was just you know into movies for good. Um, I know that you mentioned that you were a Kmart baby and you wrote screenplays. What did you ever thought of becoming an actor or did not do screenplays anymore because you make documentaries now? Well, I my my re relationship with with um with acting. I mean, I, you know, I I by my the extent of me thinking that I would be an actor was sort of just, you know, what else am I going to do? Kind of, and then I would. I would, you know, uh, imagine also like, you know, uh, getting, I, w I would always imitate what it was like to be shot in a movie. And I would just show this like to everybody who like, look, I can, I can be shot. And, and I can, and you like, look, I can pretend like I was shot by a gun. And I thought that that's what acting was, you know, but also like, I would do things like, I would say, I would organize, um, you know, I did a performance of, of the entire album of Thriller for my family in the basement of my grandparents' house. Uh, and I just made everybody sit there and watch me perform for the entire record of Thriller, Michael Jackson's Thriller, which is just shows that I had like a performance side to me. Although like when I did do dance classes and stuff, I hated performing in front of real people. So I don't really think I ever really wanted to be an actor. And, and then I was also uh, very ugly. So that was a, that, that was a, didn't help, didn't help the acting um, idea. Um, but, but also, yeah. So then in terms of screenplays, so, you know, I was writing more like I wrote like, you know, uh, books and poems and stuff. And then I did in college, I did write a couple screenplays and, you know, sort of a defense, like really important moment in my life was I wrote a screenplay and sent it to my friend, Nathan Gelgood, who is a pretty well-known artist now doing, and he does, like you might've seen his tote bags with, with characters from uh, movie history. We were roommates for many years, but when we weren't roommates, I was, uh, I, I gave him my screenplay and I hated it so much that I literally snuck into his house, stole the screenplay and threw it in the garbage. And I sort of vowed to never write a screenplay again. I bet it was probably fine, but I just hated the process. And even to this day when I'm editing fiction films and I'm supposed to read the screenplay, I just, I hate it. I just like beg whoever I'm working with, please don't make me read the screen screenplay. I just, they're just, I just think, I mean, they're essential parts of the process if you're making fiction, obviously. Um, I just don't like, I, I don't like them. It, it, there's something about my brain that does not gel well with, with a screenplay, writing it or reading it. Mm -hmm. And then I want to ask you about the being such a great film enthusiast that you then worked at the famed Kim Zilla store along with your the future DP of your early works, Sean Price Williams, and uh, and you edited some of Alex Ross Perry's. Like, what first got you into Kim's video? I was I went. I went to New York. I tried to get a job. I, I had been a video. I had worked at a video store in college in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I, when I went to New York to go to City College for my graduate degree, um, I, you know, I, I, 
I, I, for, I began, you know, sort of lying to uh, theaters. It used to be that if you worked at a movie theater, you could get in for free to other movie theaters in, in, the, in the city. And so I went to Anthology Film Archives and I met a got really nice guy there. And I said, you know, can I intern here or anything? Like, all I really want to do is to get into movies. And he's like, yeah, well, we don't really have a spot. Like, you know, it's, it's pretty full up. I was like, I'll do anything. I'll do anything. He's like, well, I really don't have a spot. But maybe we'll see. And so I took we'll see as an invitation to go around to every theater in the town and just lie and say I worked at Anthology Film Archives until I until the you know, at one point at the film forum, someone basically said, I think you're lying. And they called and they were like, you can't get in for free. And I was like, OK, well, um, I don't remember what movie that was, but I had gotten into a lot of free movies before that, which I was very proud to do. Um, and so I wanted, I just wanted to work. I just wanted to make sure I was working. All I really wanted to do was see movies. And, you know, when I, when you first moved to New York city, especially when I was there in like 2000, um, you know, it was just the greatest time ever to be a cinephile in the city. Cause there just were so many programs happening all the time. Like you could see four or five movies a day that would blow your mind in theaters on the big screens. And and so I just wanted to make sure I was immersed in that. So getting a video store job was the idea. And I went to this place called Two Boots uh, Video Store, which was a pizza place and a video store. I couldn't get a job there. And then I went to Kim's, not even really sort of knowing at the time like that it's the world-famous Kim's video. But I met Sean, and I, I think I said something like, hey, can we make this quick? Because I got to make a movie in like 20 minutes. Like I, I have to I have to – or no, I wouldn't ever have 20 minutes because it always takes an hour to get anywhere in New York. But I'd be like, basically, I said, like, I know this interview is important, but um, hey, we got to make this quick. And Sean, who you talked about, Sean Price Williams, who's now gone on to, you know, be celebrated as he should as a great cinematographer. He he was like, all right, well, you got your priorities right. You know, you you'll you know, you care about movies. That's what really matters. And he sort of like immediately wanted me to work there. And I got hired ultimately by the manager at the time, a woman named Maria. And I just worked there for a few years and, and had the best time ever. And it was like, you know, it, it's like where Sean and I met it's, it, you know, uh, Josh and Benny Safdie would come in, Ronnie Bronstein would come in, talk to Sean. Uh, you just like, it just, you know, I, at one point I recommended the mother and the whore to live Tyler. Like there's just, like just, you know, Harmony Korea would come in and, yeah, Richard Hell. I mean, just it just a it was just a uh, incubator for this incredible energy. And when it was time to make my thesis film for City College, I, you know, I got Sean to come shoot it, and we sort of you know started editing from there. And Sean is the reason why I met Doug Tarola and Susan Bedusa from Fourth Row Films, because Sean was working with Doug, and they needed an editor, and that's why I ultimately left. I worked there before Alex did, and I only I met Alex Perry through Sean and other people. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a you know I was only there for a few years, but it was a formative time. Mm. That sounds great. Now I want I'll talk about your early works. Um, Kate B with an I, then Things for Real, then Actress. Like I'm not talking about the recent ones because you already spoke about that too much. I wanted to give you a little break on that in this <laughs> lane. That sounds nice, Eddie. Thank you. Um, yeah, Kevin and I, a great portrait of your cousin, like figuring out life after high school. What led you to make a film about that? Well, it's my sister. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. Fake It's So Real is about my cousin, Chris. Katie was my sister. Um, yeah, you know, like 
so uh, that's an interesting way to describe it because it's not about life after high school at all. It's literally about the final three days of high school, right? So she's got, Katie's got, we filmed for three days building up to her high school graduation. And and the idea really was sort of, that I made a feature called Owning the Weather, which was, uh, which I liked making and I liked the film, but I don't love it. And it really wasn't the kind of movie I wanted to make. So and it, a lot of for a lot of reasons, not least of which it was it was like journalistic in a in a way that I didn't anticipate it would be, and all these other things. And so like so basically, I just was trying to like reboot what I was gonna do. And I talked to Sean. Sean had actually filmed with Katie many years before for when we were working on my thesis film, and he always talked about how she just had some quality that just came to life while you know while you're filming her, which I totally agree with. And so I said, hey, remember that? Well, guess what? She's graduating in like, a, you know, she's going to graduate. What if we went down there for just like three days and we just hung out with a teenager and made a teenager movie, you know, and he was working as the archivist for Al Maisel's at the time. So one idea was we could get Al involved and Al could be, you know, Al could be like an executive producer. But then I told that to Doug and Susan, who I was working for, and they were like, no, we want to be involved. And I was like, okay, that makes more sense. And it was really nice because they were, I was, I had a full-time job and they were like, go make this film. We'll pay you your salary, which wasn't that much, but it was, it was enough that I could pay my bills. And I had a kid already by that point. Um, Ella, Ella's in Katie with an eye. Um, mm. and, and so we just went down and we filmed for three days and I combined it with footage from, from that I had filmed of Katie when I was do, testing cameras many, many years before when I brought home like a university camera home to, uh, to film. And, and we, and it, and then, and then we made this like really lovely portrait of like, you know, three days and, and Katie's really magnetic on screen. And we just filmed things that we thought would be sort of, um, uh, evident of those days. So like pool parties and sing-alongs and cars and things like this that, and some of that stuff were like, well, let's drive to the mall. I don't know what's going to happen. And then they had the sing-along, but I knew we wanted to go to the mall. Like I would suggest things to pack those days in with stuff that would be good to film. Um, Cause most of most, you know, what you really do in Alabama is just sit around and do nothing. Most of the time, that's a, the reason to move to Alabama is so that you don't have to do anything. Um, but, but you know, uh, and I mean that as like teenagers, I think a lot of times, and you see it in the film, a lot of people just sitting around, you know, like it's kind of like it's the lifestyle of a very slow, you know, south, basically. So I packed in some things to to try to get, you know, things to happen, so to speak. And but we just never knew what the film was going to be. And and the the freedom that we made the film with was that, you know, I, I knew it could be it could be a movie, maybe. But it didn't have to be a movie. It could have just been a graduation present for Katie, you know, and we sort of filmed it like that, which is like ridiculous to think me and Sean just down in Alabama. And and Sean, the original idea was that it was going to be Sean and I co-directing. He was going to shoot it. I was going to edit it and we were going to be co-directors. I think ultimately he was like, that. I don't really want this to be my first film. So um, you're the director. It's your it's your story. It's your film. But he was down there. Cause I stayed out of the way kind of like I, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't influencing Kate, how Katie reacted. So Sean was really there with my brother, Clint, um, uh, Clint went down there with him and it was just really Sean filming for the first day and a half. And then I came in for the last day and a half. 
And we made this beautiful little portrait. And then Katie told us she was pregnant and she had been pregnant the whole time. And so we came back like, you know, a couple months later and the last scene is sort of a jaw dropping reveal that she's pregnant. And it's just, so I had all these questions that we talk about when I, when I, when you were in class with me, Eddie, like all these questions about eth ethical considerations, like those were very, very immediate and powerful in my life, right? Right. So I, I showed Katie the film. She had seen a cut of the film before she told me she was pregnant and then we filmed and then she saw it afterwards. And, and basically, you know, her and uh, my mother and my stepfather, Brian, like if, if they would have decided they didn't want the movie to be released, it wouldn't have been released. And that was pretty horrible because I loved the movie and I still love the movie and it's something beautiful and it really helped my life a lot to make that film. And, and ultimately like they gave me that gift of, of, of letting the film come out because, because they could have said no, you know, but I think Katie really loved it and I think she still loves it, which is important. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. I want to go backtrack a little earlier about how, only the Weather is a film that just happened to be made by you instead of the Robert Greene film that we would think of. And how did that experience transform to like the remaining six feature completed films you've done? Well, I, 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 start off, I started off making Only the Weather, like a lot of documentary filmmakers, I was inspired by an article in Harper's Magazine by Ando Arake, who was a writer who was writing this really beautiful complex uh, idea about our connection to the weather. And I thought, well, no one's ever made a film about the weather and in this in this way. And that's not even true. There's the um, uh, the Kushar brothers made or Mike Kushar. No, no. George Kushar made uh, these weather diaries, which are beautiful films about the weather. And there's been other versions of this. But in my mind, I was like, no one's ever really made a film like this. Like I was thinking, like literally just weather. That's all it was going to be. Because I had made a bunch of experimental short films that had played in New York Underground Film Festival and the Chicago Underground Film Festival and places like that. Like I had done that for years leading up to this. And so I thought I was going to make an experimental feature. But then I met the wet people in the weather modification community and I actually thought their stories in a journalistic sense were really important to tell. And so I actually, I was like, actually it's too important of a topic because we're going to have to, because of climate change, we're going to have to geoengineer the planet. Like that's, and, and it's still something we're going to have to do. We're going to have to figure out, you know, one of the, one of the ways we're, we're going to have to get out of this mess that we've caused is, Geoengineering, which means large-scale weather mo climate modification, really, is something we're going to have to do, potentially, and, and probably. And so I thought, like, it's too important to make this film for me to make some experimental film that no one's going to ever see or that's going to go to the, you know, with all due love and respect to Chicago Underground Film Festival. I thought I needed a bigger audience. And I actually almost, like, went, had a big budget for the film um, with another production company, but but the economy collapsed in 2008 and so there was like no funding now available for for big films and fourth row films did that same thing where they said well we'll help you make it you know and so but it, and it's really funny because doug you know at one point late in the process says why don't you just make this more like your original idea it's like an experimental film and i wish i would have listened to him because 
he was right. Like I should have made it more like the films that I loved, but I thought that, look, I got a young family. I got to do this. Like I, I need to make something more, a little bit more mainstream or something. Right. And so I made a film that's a compromise and it really, it ultimately it's, I think it's fine. And I think there is some connection you'll, you can see between the, that film and the later films, but I, but I, it ultimately just wasn't the kind of movie I wanted to make. And, and what's ironic is, you know, my producer who probably I would have assumed most wanted me to make money actually wanted me to explore my own voice better. And that's one of the, when he said that, that was a foundation of what's been, uh, you know, incredible 20 year friendship and, 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 you know, relationship for, as my producer. And so it was just this weird, awful experience, but look, it played at full frame. Like it went, it got a good premiere and it got written about an indie wire, which, which, you know, and it got picked up by a company at the time called Synetic Rights Management, which was uh, led by Matt Dentler, who had been the head of the South by Southwest Film Festival and who's now a major person at Apple. And this year when we were, you know, fast forward, you know, 13, 14 years later, we're at the Independent Spirit Awards and Matt Dentler comes up to me and Doug and says, I got three words for you, owning the weather. And his point was, look how far you've come. And, you know, I've been there from the beginning. And like, and, and so, you know, it, it, it started the process of getting to where I wanted to go, but I was frustrated, you know, and, and frustrated with the, the film not being, and mostly, you know what I was frustrated with? I was frustrated when I had, I met Bill and Turner Ross, lifelong friends. I met them at full frame where they were premiering four, five, three, six, five. And I was premiering owning the weather and they watched the film and they said, this is your shorts are better than this. Like your, your films can be better than this. And I always remember like, like loving four, five, three, six, five more than anything. And just being like, I, I want to go more in that direction, you know? And, and just the fact that they were even early in our friendship, we were, we were calling each other out and saying, you could do better. You know, that was important. So that's, it, that sort of pushed me to try something new and that, that was, and the, the trying something new was Katie with an eye. Wow. That's such <laughs> Tremendous ways of everything being paid off. And in uh, Karen and I, like, as you said, that she had a lively aspect to what she brings on screen. Like, when do you recognize that she was a performer of sorts, as well as recognizing your lineage film works of performance? Well, I, I, I think I had always been interested in the, the idea of um, performance, you know, going back to the Kmart baby, going back to, um, sort of this idea of, of being theatrical about yourself. I think like when I look back on it now, it's like, you know, performing your identity is something I had to do to survive growing up. And so I probably was attuned to that, uh, in, in a deep sense as a, as a kid, um, but then, but then, uh, you know, fast forward to college, I'm writing essays about how John Cassavetes movies are documentaries about performance, you know, uh, you know, they're about the thing that they are, uh, uh, you know, that they feature, which is great performances. And, and just having, thinking about that stuff was all percolating, right? But it really wasn't until Eric Cohn of IndieWire wrote a review of Katie with an Eye and said that she gave one of the best performances of the year 
And it was that moment that I was like, oh, that's what I was doing. I was watching, a, we were filming, Sean was filming, and then I was editing a person who was performing the identity of a teenager. And what I was personally fascinated about with was the idea that she could play this role of teenager and that we could see it. We could see it clearly. Like you could see like, oh God, she does it. And that's what creates the tension and drama and beauty of that film is that she, we know that she's performing something. She doesn't know that she's performing something. And so there's something very powerful about that and seeing like, oh no, you're trapped in all these ways of thinking about what it means to be an adult and you don't know yet. And there's, and, and so the performance wasn't just like, wow, she's faking or something. You know, and then like I was really influenced by by uh, the cruise, Bennett Miller's The Cruise, which stars tar, uh, stars uh, Speed Levitch, which you know he's performing the whole time. But the performance like leaves leads you somewhere, right? Like, so I just suddenly realized, oh my god, that's what I was that was what I was interested in from the beginning, and then I could sort of build on that and and sort of go deeper into the idea of of this sort of like um, friction that's created between what we think is real and what we think is performed. And I, I you know, I, I could think like, oh, well, this is why I've loved Frederick Wiseman's movies in certain ways. This is why I love, you know, Salesman by the Maisels in a certain way, or, you know, on and on and on. I, I started really thinking about what documentary performance was, what, what it was and what it could be. Mm -hmm. And they do lead to an honest lived experience that your participants have, whether in all of your latter six films. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, performance doesn't mean you're not living the experience. In fact, it it means it's the only, you know, it's a cliche. It's like you know, all the world's a stage. You know, like you know, there, there's 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 so much studying about performing identities and performing roles and and all that. Like, we don't need to beat that dead horse. But I just think that you can see it. And to me, it was like. Well, what do you when you can see it with a camera? What do you do with it, right? Like, so it doesn't mean it's fake. It just means that the camera's recognizing layers of things that are happening that that we can't otherwise maybe articulate as clearly, you know. So that was just exciting and felt like, and and it really it did lead what you know with Katie with an eye the it got a Gotham nomination. Um, which was sort of shocking to us because we made it for literally zero dollars. And, you know, we were just like, wow, this film, like people really are responding to this film. And then, you know, sort of maybe think, oh, there's something, I'm going to go more in this direction, you know? Mm -hmm. And that, and so the next film was another family member, uh, Chris Solar in Fake It Surreal. You know, for me, if I'm interested in document, if, if I'm suddenly aware of documentary performance and what its possibilities are, it was time for me to go ahead and make my pro wrestling film because I've, you know, a lifelong continue to be a, a fan of pro wrestling. So that was, that was going to be that, that needed to be next. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But face of real, I got to see a few days ago on movie and recognized the idea of like process of creating, of constructing an idea in wrestling applies. Same thing with, filmmaking in general like there are so much parallels between the two yeah i mean in in some ways it the film is about independent art 
no matter how you slice it, right? Like so it, it it's about it's about um the spirit of being an artist with no with little to no means. We Sean and I were shooting the film once again with my brother Clint involved and and once again you know backed by Fourth Row Films like they were supporting me being there. And this was one week in the life rather than three days in the life, it was one week in the life of of the you know these guys leading up to one show and yeah like you 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 really are watching them put on put on a show that's all you're watching and it's and we we felt a lot of kinship with with the, those guys even even though like their language was you know oftentimes very homophobic and sometimes racist and and really like you know fucked up in a lot of ways it was it was we still did identify with the idea that you could just go out and try to make something because that's where we were in our in our careers. We were just trying to make something. Mm-hmm. And uh, like, as you mentioned that they are just trying to figure out while still pursuing their passions, like how do you try to humanize that while they are spitting out homophobic and racist language, as you mentioned? Well, I mean... The thing is, is that that language, if you grew up in the South or really grew up anywhere, that language was not a surprise, right? You know, I, I think the film is very much made in 2010, 2011. I think it would be a different film today. I think I think there's a lot of differences, uh, not least of which it would be I would probably feel like I need to intervene into that language in a way that I did not feel in 2010 that I needed to intervene into that language. Um, and that's because, you know, I, I wanted to show the, the real way that working class people, mostly white, not, but not all white, mostly straight, but not all straight, um, uh, talked, you know, like what kind of language do they really use? And, and then you see, like, despite the coarse um, sort of, rough edges like the, the the sincerity and the love that they have for each other is very real so they could rib each other and they could be mean to each other and they could say all these awful things to each other which are offensive on their face and also personally offensive to within the community to each other and then they can genuinely take care of each other in the ring you know and they could be they could do this thing together and i think that that sort of complexity i'm quite proud of that complexity as it's depicted on on in the film because the truth is, is like in post-Trump, you know, world, it's very difficult to make films about, you know, complex things like this. Because that that evil man, that narcissist fucker has forced us to choose sides in a way that is maybe not, you know, like all of us have, you know, members of our family or members of our extended community or mem people that we grew up with or people that are just like the people we grew up with or whatever that we may have different views from. And now we really do feel like it's a, it is a civil war, you know, cultural, cultural civil war happening, you know, right now be, you know, uh, partly because of the, the forces that Trump, Trump's unbelievable election have unleashed. And so, and those forces were already there. Um, but he sort of exacerbated them, exacerbated them, made them worse, and unleashed this idea that we have to be either or, or that we're battling with each other. And I think in some ways, Fake It's a Real, you know, is a better movie because it wasn't made now, because it, uh, I, it could be more ambiguous. You could love someone who's saying some of this language. 
you know, you could you could show that 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 that's that's how that's actually a fuller picture of a kind of person, you know. And they were being very very honest and open with me in front of in front of the camera. So, um, you know, and humanizing. Like, look, I'm I I came from that same community. Like, I've, I'm a working class white person. Um, you know, I grew up poor. I had to make my own way, just like they did. So I. I uh, I don't need to work too hard to humanize. I it did ultimately. It's startling to think that they felt comfortable saying those words around me because what does that say about me, right? Like that means that I am part of their in group of homophobic language and and at least one racist comment, right? I'm mm -hmm. part of their in group that is accepting accepting that that language and. Since, you know, in the decade plus since we made the film, I've thought about that a lot. And what that what does that mean for me and what responsibilities do I have as a filmmaker to change that dynamic when whenever the opportunity comes up? And I do think I have that responsibility. So mm -hmm. it's, you know, I, I just wouldn't I simply I, I, I'm proud of the film, but I wouldn't have made it the way we made it. Mm hmm. Yeah. And one of the things I love is I always am a fan of sports movies, despite how formulaic they are. Like, I love the rookie storyline that Gabriel had and uh, that's one of the things I want to say about it and I want to get into actress the portrait of Brandy Burr like I, I know that you've been mayors with her and what when do you realize that you will make a film about her so Fake It Surreal and Katie and I both premiered at Trufoss which changed my life and I had been, started going to the festival every year True false, of course, is here in Colombia, where I'm, where we're talking, and um, just that idea of a community and being out there. You know, the film played "Fake It's a Real" played all over the world, and got enough of an audience. Those two films got enough of an audience that I was now part of a community, and so I act. So, sort of making your next film within that framework, you know is just kind of an exciting proposition. It's like, what can I do now? Like, where, where do I, where do I go? I want to be a, you know, and really the motivation for the beginning of continuing to make films is I, I, I like being, I like doing this. I like being a part of this world. I like, I, I like debating these things with people. I like, I like having these exciting conversations. And so that 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 instinct or that feeling of of uh, wanting to keep making films for all these other reasons, you know, it never really was about making money. Um, actress made no money. I didn't really get paid to make any kind of movie until Bisbee Seventeen, um, you know, which and then Procession, you know, are the only times I've ever been really paid to make a film. Um, but I, you know, but I did get supported once again, was supported by fourth row by, by this time I was living in beacon next to Brandy, like you said. And I, I did, I didn't even really, I didn't really know what's the next film going to be. Like I had a lot of different ideas at one early stage. It was going to be three actors and it was going to be Brandy, Caitlin Scheel, who starred in, uh, Kate plays Christine, the next film and an older actor. And I was thinking like Judy Dench or somebody, and it was just going to be portraits of their lives like at different stage of the process which is pretty reductive and maybe a dumb idea and i started filming with brandy at first under that idea and because brandy was in a very specific spot she was a mom she w was out of the business quote unquote but not really you're never really out of the business 
And I was interested in that. I also was interested in the fact that when you put the camera on her, she was always acting. You know, the way she would say it is, I'm not being theatrical, I am theatrical, which I love that distinction. So as a person interested in performance, I was really like, you know, the whole idea was like, I just want to watch Brandy do these motherly rituals, but you know that she's an actor, you know, so you're going to question the sort of framework of how these rituals of being a mother and being a housewife, how they get codified and how they get solidified and, and how they draw you in, right? Like, so maybe we can make some sort of commentary on being trapped in social roles by making, you know, this section of the big a actor film that I was trying to make, um, which was, you know, uh, the next step on the, and talking about performance and documentary and everything. And then we started filming with Brandy and I did film a little bit with Kate actually. And that, some of that footage actually ended up in, in Katie in uh, Kate plays Christine. But, um, but we, but, Brandy's story just took over, you know, like, like the, the, the complexity of what the camera was doing with her, we, we just became incredible collaborators and she brought so much of herself to the screen. And then also her life started to take a turn and I had to decide, or, or more like she forced me to decide. She forced me to say like, look, if you're making a film about my life, this is my messy life. And if you don't want to film that, then you're not telling the truth here. And so she pulled me into sort of depicting what was really happening. At the same time, I was watching what was happening as a friend, which is the breakup of her, of her relationship. She wasn't married, but it was, but they were living together and it was, you know, had two children and, and it was really harrowing and hard and difficult and hard to balance all that. But ultimately, you know, she was using the stage that we were crafting together, you know, and and that was powerful to watch and really said, ultimately, it said everything that I dreamt of saying about the role of performance and film. And and more importantly, it like just like the other films, it didn't stop at like, oh, wow, we're performers because that's really boring. It's like, what do we do with that knowledge? You know, and, and hopefully actress says something about, you know, the the roles that we take in our lives. Mm hmm. Yeah. As a. Uh... Like the know that Brandy Larry said in the film, like we are fitting into these social roles, like to paraphrase, but also it's a film about beauty and glances where Brandy has a lot of makeup, brush her hair, and also that leads up to the fracture orbit injury at the end of the film. Yeah, I mean, we didn't know how to end the film. Um, we had a lot of crazy ideas. At one point, I thought maybe we would, she would write a stage, a one woman show about the making of the documentary and the final scene would just be her acting out scenes from the film that you just saw or something like that. That was one thing. And then we had some other really horrible ideas about maybe like, you know, I don't know, like, melodrama like playing with the idea of melodrama as a form and really pushing that and there was a bunch of different different stuff we thought about and then she fell down and busted her face and uh the first thing i saw was well i saw her and i was like oh my god are you okay and she's like no it sucks and and then tim who was her partner who they had just broken up he just said, I didn't do it, you know, not not on camera or anything, but just as a joke. And I was like, oh, my God, like this whole thing 
is about how we perceive Brandy, basically, because she's a prickly human being. Like she's she's a difficult person to completely root for, and she's a very difficult person to dismiss because she is very honest and very direct about how she feels about things. Uh, like unlike how we want most women to be, especially in film, where we want them to be basically quote unquote perfect, right? And she's far from it. And that's why I love her. And that's why she's one of my best friends. And, you know, I saw she basically, it just, it just occurred to me that we could really play with perceptions about this in, in the same way that Tim was making a joke. I didn't do it, which is at its heart, a horrific thing to say, you know, I didn't do it. I didn't punch my, you know, former partner in the face, which is just so monstrous and horrific. Of course, he's making a joke because what else do you do in that situation? You're trying to like diffuse the situation and the fact that someone might have thought that. And so I just thought we could really we could really like that. What a what a powerful possible ending to to do our last little bit of storytelling, you know, twisty, turny stuff and have you not know for a beat and then have her talk about the fact that you didn't know as a viewer in the way she talked about it and see where it took us. But yeah, that, it, that ended up being the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I also enjoyed the slow motion walk scenes. Like when did you know they want X scene to be in slow motion and the rest regular 24 frames per second? Well, I shot, I shot a lot of the slow motion myself. So I had a camera, I was shooting, you know, even though the Ross brothers Western came out after actress, I shot, they shot at Western way before I shot Actress. And so I think we're really the, one of the last films to use, you know, the DVX uh, 100, uh, one of the great documentary cameras ever. We're one of the last films to really use that camera in earnest. I was using the DVX because I loved, I loved it. And, and even though it was like, by this point, people were shooting 4K even, you know, certainly H, everything was HD. And I was shooting in standard definition and like, you know, trying to be as expressive as possible. But I did have a 720p slow motion camera loaned to me by, by, by uh, Fourth Row Films or, you know, given to me for the purposes of the shoot. And I, and I, so I could shoot some stuff like in slow motion because this Sony camera, which was like the follow up to some of their earlier cameras, it didn't really, it wasn't a great camera per se, but it did have a great slow motion function. And so I'd done some of that, but the, the best stuff in that film is comes from basically a very, very long day of shooting when Sean Price Williams, once again, come, uh, he said he, um, he gave me a birthday present one time and said one free day of shooting. And so I was like, Oh, great. So I have one free day of shooting. And I, uh, I, you know, just brought, bought him a ticket to come up to beacon from New York. And he, basically filmed a lot of the slow motion stuff that's in the film. He filmed it on that one day and we, and it was uh, a crazy long day. And uh, Jessica Oric was there and she was part of it for a while, but she didn't ultimately, she wasn't ultimately a part of some of the crazier stuff that we did with slow motion and stuff. And, and um, yeah, but, but, but that's how that stuff got in there. So like, so it was, it was a thing that I was already doing, um, but it really brought up, but you know, Sean, Sean getting the coat hanger shot, for example, and all the red dress stuff really, really elevated the film. Mm -hmm. Now I want to speak a little bit about how the latter three films, as well as the earlier ones are very 
are defined by like some certain traits, like how the last three films you said are now shot like on a Sony FS5 or a similar camera, but led you to shoot on that camera instead of keep shooting on DV. It was just time, you know, like, I mean, for, uh, yeah, the last three were FS, uh, sevens, all three films were shot on the FS seven, which is a beautiful camera. And it started with Sean really wanting to do that with, with Kate plays Christine. And that was the last time Sean and I have worked together with me being a director and him being a cinematographer. And then, and then I, you know, I think if we had a bigger budget for Bisbee 17, I bet Jared would have wanted, Jared Alterman would have wanted to shoot with a different camera. And I could say probably the same thing with Rob Kaladny and shooting procession, but I'm really comfortable with the images of the FS7. So I feel, and, and they, and obviously produces really beautiful work. So um, I think some of it is budget constraint and the sort of, you know, that's a great cheap camera basically. Um, Cause e- even though the movies have gotten bigger, my, the budgets, because of the, the sort of adventurousness with which we make these films that it's, it's kind of difficult to raise money, frankly. So we're Mm -hmm. never going to be able to raise millions of dollars to, I mean, at least we haven't been up to this point able to raise millions of dollars because these are experiments that I'm trying, you know, as a filmmaker. And I think hopefully my success with these experiments will eventually keep our budgets will keep going higher and we can try new things. But um, so yeah, the FS seven really comes from that. I also, the first time I ever, you know, yeah, Sean, I mean, I just trusted Sean. And, I mean, I, I trusted Sean, Jared, and Rob all completely in what they thought to do. A lot of it is lenses, right? So a, a, an area that I don't know anything about is the difference between different kinds of glass that you could use for lenses. And so, you know, Sean, Jared, and Rob all have extensive knowledge in terms of what kinds of lenses to use. And we did a lot of experiments. And Sean... I think Sean was adamant about what he wanted. You know, we wanted Kate Place Christine to look like a hazy, strange Florida 70s film, and, and it does have that look. And then we wanted uh, Bisbee 17 to look like a Western, and we wanted Procession to to sort of evoke some old cinema of maybe Brisson and other, other filmmakers. So there was some very, very clear decisions made about the kinds of lenses that were used, and that's probably just as – it's as important – as the camera that we used. Mm-hmm. That makes me want to talk about the collaboration process where, like, when the other producers, like Susan Doug and Bennett and the DPs, uh, have their ideas and try to expand the films and also recognizing the limits of the author theory and the directed by credit as exemplified in procession. Yeah, I mean, to me, Whatever. I mean, look, the auteur theory was an idea of expressing film as art, basically. It was a way to try to say, you have not given people like John Ford, you, the public, have not given people like John Ford and Hitchcock the credit that they deserve because they're artists. And that has, and that was, you know, Truffaut and Godard and other people would, would sort of talk about this and 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 that has now expanded to somehow saying that the only person who is an artist is the director and and it's sort of ex- the, the the mythology of the auteur theory has been expanded by things like the way we think about Stanley Kubrick and you know go watch room 237 the insane documentary about the making of the shining which is really like four or five conspiracy theorists who think that 
Kubrick, you know, absolutely controlled every aspect of his films, which the truth is, is he was more controlling of his films than other people were, but it's still a totally insane way of looking at filmmaking because the, you know, it's an incredibly collaborative art form. And, and I've been moving in that direction for a long time. You know, I, I recognizing, I mean, like I said, Sean and I were originally supposed to co-direct Katie with an eye. The Katie and the wrestlers for Fake It So Real were certainly collaborators. And Fake It So Real specifically, we worked together on how the storylines were going to be depicted in the film, me and the wrestlers, because they're pro wrestlers. They're they are performers. They're thinking about their performance while you're watching, you know. Um, there's parts of that film that I still don't know to this day. How much did the the wrestlers in Fake It So Real fake things? for the camera and how much did they not? And I don't care. I love it because they worked, they, they're wrestlers, they're showmen. They worked me as well as they worked the audience. Right. Um, actress was a collaboration. Uh, Kate plays Christine was even more of a collaboration. Bisbee 17. We ended up, you know, having the Ross brothers and Rob Kaladny shoot with us, you know, with Jared on the day, on the day we were, you know, creating the, 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 the recreation of the deportation. And, uh, and on that day, like we're filming people singing their own songs. We, we, you know, there's all there's all kinds of levels of of collaboration going on there. Not least of which being the producers who are co-directing and co-creating the staging, right? And so by by the time we got to procession, it was just time to acknowledge all that stuff in a more meaningful way. And that was the perfect film to do it with, because the idea that these six survivors were going to be talking about their own, you know, they, they were going to be creating their own, you know, movies, basically scenes. And so it was a great time to just rip that all down and say, this is a film by all of us. Now that doesn't mean that I am not, my role as director isn't important. It certainly doesn't mean my role as editor isn't important. Is, is it, the most important in some ways, right? Because the editor has the power to shape the entire thing, right? Um, so there is a sense of like, you know, for me, there is a sense of like, you could, the, the you know, saying it's a film by everybody is just the truth. That's just a true way of saying something. And that's really inspired, by the way, by the Maisels, who would, you know, basically say it's a Maisels Brothers film but it was directed by Charlotte Zwerin, who was the editor, you know, like, like that, they, that collaborative idea is a, not a new one at all. Um, but I, it, what it really has meant for me is, is, is that I think more clearly about how responsible I am as a director and editor. Um, and then, but then also empowering other people to feel responsible for their roles. For example, Danny Bowersox, who was the sound recordist in the film and the field, he is a filmmaker. He he shoots and directs and edits and does sound and does all these kinds of things, right? It, if if he feels like it's a film by him, his role, which is literally being the first person to take in all this stuff that these guys are saying in procession, you know, he he takes that even more seriously than he already does. And he knows that his work is going to be seen as it should be, which is, this is a film by me too, you know? And I, and I just, and the same goes for Monica Finney and the drama therapist or, or, you know, of course, Doug, Sue and Bennett Elliott, like that, like they, they, that is, as producers, 
they are doing so much more than just setting up the framework of the film. They're working with the subjects, you know, the participants in the film on, in a powerful way all the time. So, so yeah, I, I would say, you know, um, it, it, that film by credit is just a realization of what, of what the process really is. And, and, um, and it doesn't mean that I'm not the director and doesn't mean that I'm not the editor, but it does mean that everyone else is, as just as responsible as me for what make, makes that film work. I love how you all, how you articulate that. And in uh, all of these latter three films, um, have participants being in situations that they weren't filmed. And while the other ones were like, we have three days till graduation or the week till the show, like it's like a different process of those, your first half and second half. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, actually, the truth is, is that procession was an attempt to get back to to incorporate what we've learned in Cape Place Christine and Bisbee 17, but to get back to some of the intimacy of actress and Katie with an eye and fake it surreal, right? Like I wanted procession to have all those things, right? Like I I, I enjoy the sort of conceptual gymnastics or something of the last couple of films. I really like playing with expectations, using staging as an idea to sort of deconstruct storytelling and try to get into the, the, you know, into the, the real truth of something by staging other things. I really love all that. Right. But I, but I felt like the, what had been sacrificed in those two films is sort of this feeling of intimacy. Right. And so procession was an attempt to sort of, um, bring that all together. I, you know, you, I wanted you to feel like you were definitely in the room in a more powerful way. Just like you felt like you were in the room with Brandy and actress. I wanted you to feel that way in procession. And I think it gets there. And I think that, um, or at least I hope it gets there. And I, so that, so that, that's sort of a, a way that I thought about it. You know, I mean, to me, it's just like each movie teaches me things that are like, I want to keep working on for the next movie. And I also make a lot of mistakes. Um, you know, uh, there are a lot of errors made in how I do, you know, when, when you're, tr when you're living, when you're sort of working on this edge and trying to be collaborative, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to do things wrong and you're going to, you're going to represent things wrong. For example, the fact that in Bisbee 17, we should have had therapists there for the large scale recreation of the deportation. Cause although none of those people, that are on screen had directly experienced the deportation. That is a historical trauma that haunts that place still and haunts individual lives still. And we should have had therapists there. We should have had drama therapists or, you know, other therapists there to consult, to have people to consult with, to talk to, because it was incredibly powerful. And the truth is, is I didn't know that it was going to be so powerful. You know, for me, if the whole thing got rained out and it was an act of God, so to speak, and, you know, got rained out and they couldn't even do it because the monsoons opened up, that would have been just as good of an ending. Or if if everyone was just awkward and all we did was film like, you know, fake uh, moving still photos that were like weird performance pieces in the town and no one was into it at all, I could have made that work as a film. Like I was open to whatever Bisbee 17 was going to be. It turned out it was an incredibly cathartic uh, exorcism, you know, in the middle of town. It was emotional, it was passionate, and it was very vivid. 
And I didn't know it was going to be that. And I should have anticipated that it could be that. So we learned the lesson of that. And that really, that, that feeling that I should have known or I should have anticipated or I should have cared even deeper than I did, which I cared so much about Bisbee and I care so much about that story. I should have cared more and I should have anticipated what it could have become. And then that feeling is what animated Procession and the making of that film. Mm. And also, and it's just like, you know, pers personal failings and professional failings and mistakes and all kinds of things. They just go into this work in really powerful ways. And you're, you know, for me, what, what are movies, if not attempts to make idealistic versions of the world in some ways? And, and, and for me, an idealistic version of the world is complex and ethically tricky and at, makes you ask questions and makes you uh, wonder what you're watching and if you should be watching it and if, if this thing should be made at all and all these other things, right? Like, that's the, an idealistic world for me is that we're all questioning what we're watching and we're thinking deeply and then we're having collective experiences um, connecting with other people, you know? And, and so to me, all my personal mistakes and professional mistakes and other things go into all these, all these films and I just try to make it meaningful. Mm hmm. Yeah, that makes me really think a lot in the latter three films that there are elements of catharsis, the therapeutic process, and using that to get to the participants' goals. And also, as like I think how I frame it, the necessary skepticism that's in the latter three films, which is should we like recreate these events or should we stage this, or instead of we are doing this, being certain. Yeah, I really appreciate how you frame that, Eddie. Like, and I and I'll I'll say I really appreciate your questions because you're really you know as a film viewer you're really thoughtful in how you you not you take in what the film is doing and you and I really appreciate how you you as in this podcast and then as a student and in your work as a filmmaker how you have integrated like your thoughts about what what the the intention is as well as what the product is because those are sometimes in conflict with it, in, in discussion with each other. So I really like how you do that. And this, this podcast is a great form for you to express that skill that you have. Um, but I, I, yeah, I would say like the uncertainty about whether it should exist or not. I mean, I, I actually just think that like in life, we're all a little too certain <laughs> that what we, that our ideas are worthy. And maybe if the films can express uh, the value of uncertainty and mm -hmm. the value uh, and, and sort of the um, the sort of provisional nature of documentary itself, right? Like the, the idea that you should really question everything you're doing and that w documentaries should always be questioning whether they should exist or not. And it's just, it's, you know, it's all contributing images and at this point in history the the sort of collective spectacle of Im of images is so overwhelming that you really need to it really needs to be worth it to create images and i feel like maybe the films if if they're worth worth anything maybe they're worth just uh that questioning like just 
foregrounding that questioning, you know, and may, and the viewer can't escape. And it makes it, you know, and I admit, like, it makes it, like, not the most enjoy, like, not everybody likes these movies. So, you know, I, I, I mean, I got plenty of people who like my movies, which is so cool, but I got plenty of people who hate them, and that's fine. And I understand, like, like you're, there might be not as much pleasure in watching something that's so constantly questioning, but I, I don't know how to do it otherwise because I have questions, you know, and I, and I have questions about myself as a person and I have questions about my motivations and I have questions about the motivations of the people who say yes to us filming them. And I have questions about my collaborators and I have questions about the world. I have questions about the idea of film itself and the idea of spectacle culture. I have questions of all these things. And so I just don't know how else to do it except to infuse that sort of anxiety into the films it, themselves, kind of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one last thing that I know is about how each of your films are influenced um, with your personal family life as your spouse, Deanna, is an assistant editor on Days of Real and Kate and I, and an either and a better, like, can you explain about how your role, like your personal life affects the way you make films? Thank, thank you, Eddie, for that question, because yeah, Aider and a better is an incredible credit that Deanna, so I'm married to Deanna Davis. We met in, you've, you've met Deanna, of course. Eddie. Yeah, a couple of times. Uh, and, and we met in film school. She is, um, she has a master's degree in anthropology from the new school, um, and then she went to City College with me because she thought maybe she wanted to make eth ethnographic films. And then she quickly learned she doesn't like film that much. Um, but but I edited her. We sort of fell in love as like as students together. And I I edited her uh, documentary and she helped produce my documentary. And we just worked together first and and. Um, She's been a crucial collaborator through the entire process. And and I look, I, I think it's one thing to say, I think every partner, if you're married or if you have a long-term partner, it's most likely that your partner is a collaborator in your work. Even if they don't even look at it until it's done, they're aiding you in so many ways as a as a life partner. And and Deanna certainly does that. And you know, she we have two children and she's you know, I edit from home a lot, um, you know, so I'm often just thinking constantly about uh, the films. I'm talking to my, my kids, see cuts of things, and I talk to them about it. But but talking about Deanna is really um, relevant right now because I'm editing. Uh, I don't really want to talk about it because it's it's too early, but I'm editing uh, uh, Rob Kolodny's um, first fiction feature film now. And uh, he, Rob shot Procession, of course, and we've worked together on a lot of different things. And we're, we're, you know, working together on several different things now, including his film. And she was just an invaluable viewer of this film. She was one of the first people to see a rough cut because I needed, because I didn't know really, I knew we needed to do something. And I didn't know what it was. And she was just able to like watch it and pull apart aspects of the film that were working, aspects that weren't, and how can we make it better? And then we did you know, basically worked with a lot of things that she suggested and, and the film got way better even within a week of editing because of her. And she just, it, she just comes, she just comes at, at things from such a clear angle and she's such an ethical viewer, meaning she's very concerned with how people are presented, but she really, 
her real secret thing is that she um, she loves mystery novels. So she has got it. She's got form forms of storytelling embedded in her brain. And this is actually the trick for Doug. Doug Tarola is he was a screenwriter for years and years. So like when you when you really care about structure, like because all mystery novels are a structure, basically it you really can think about things in very clear ways like same with Doug like they can think about story in very clear ways and and she's just because she's my partner and she's so honest and she's just brutal you know like she'll just basically say like like i remember like with Katie with an eye i showed her like a 105 minute cut and she was done and she was like why the hell did you make me watch that that is it is so boring like you need to cut this down or no one will ever watch it and i was like geez okay Wow, thanks for the harsh notes. And then, like, she's, I was like, "Well, what did you find boring? This entire section, just get rid of it. It's just boring, boring, boring." And I was like, "Okay." And then, like, I did what she wanted, and the movie got good. And then the same process for every one of the movies. Like, Kate plays Christine the entire time. She was basically like, "No one wants to watch this movie." You, I believe, at that point, you know, I made a couple films that she ultimately liked, and she would, she'd be like. You know, uh, only you could pull this off, but no, I don't think you could do it. Basically, like, like I want to see if you could do it. I love you, I support you, but let's see. You know, and she ch and me proving her not wrong, but just proving that I didn't waste our life making this film was a big motivation why that movie even has a beginning, middle, and end, and made it to Sundance. You know, like so she's just she's the toughest critic. She her in her mind her secret part of the recipe is that she just she doesn't like movies that much. <laughs> so in her mind, like I do, she's like, I don't like movies that much so I can get really annoyed by them. And so I can tell you what sucks. And I'm just like, okay, you know, that's pretty much, you know, the best kind of thing. So anyway, I appreciate that question, Eddie, because I can't speak enough about, I mean, everybody's partner is an important collaborator, mm -hmm. but she came up. Oh yeah. So she came up with the aider and a better credit because she did not like being called an assistant editor. She didn't think she was a producer. She, 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 so she needed something. And she was like, this is like, I have aided you. And I'm also partly responsible for this thing going out in the world. It's like a legal term that <clears throat> like, this thing is out in the world. So I am responsible partly. So I am accepting responsibility for putting this thing out there by helping you do this work and I'm aiding it being created. And I was just like, yeah, that's perfect. That's just perfect. Wow, that's so lovely to hear. And also how that who knows that movies could be better by someone who hates movies. Yeah, you know, she doesn't, she, she doesn't hate movies. She just doesn't have very much patience for the garbage of most filmmakers. Mm -hmm. Thank which, you for clarifying that. That's, a, that's an important way to put it. Like she basically is correct that most filmmakers are absolutely full of shit and she is able to see how full of shit we all are. And she's, you know, an, uh, she's a necessary part of the process. <laughs> I think that's a good wrapping point. And now the final question I do with your past students is what's a great Kim's video recommendation that you want to like bring up? Well, my favorite movie of all time, which stayed on the employees' picks uh, every forever, was Edvard Munch by Peter Watkins. It is not for everybody, but it is one of the most complex, uh, ingenious works ever made in movies. 
And uh, spoiler, it's the number one on my sight and sound uh, list that I have to submit in a couple days um, uh, for the sight and sound all-time greatest films list. Edvard Munch, number one by Peter Watkins. It's a portrait of the artist Edvard Munch, um, but it's really just a portrait of the process of art and making art and importantly... Um, probably as important as anything, just the, the ent- entire history of the 20th century and thought. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so it's and, and it's just it's an unbelievable work of art. So that's that's always my my pick. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for hearing that, and thank you for taking the time today and sharing a lot about collaboration, performance, and catharsis. And I hope you have a good day, Eddie. It was a real pleasure. Nice to see you, buddy. Today's concluding thought, being open. In this segment, concluding thought, I tend to share stuff in my life and experiences as a neurodivergent white guy. But I also need to understand that it will be a public record once I say anything, and I can't deny that statement's existence. Though it's good to be open about a few things, I need to know that some stuff should be kept private and that not everybody needs to know about every single activity I ever did. I also acknowledge that anyone can listen to it and not everyone will agree with everything I say. Even when real print gets more popular, I'll reflect on the past things I shared when the podcast had a smaller number of plays and contemplate if I would say that to a larger fan base. I was comfortable speaking about stuff that I cared about, I'm also worried that I told some stuff like family life in a negative portrait. I shared that because I was in a state where things were tense. I needed a platform to let it out. It's good that I got that out of my head. Most of these events do not change or over time become better, and it's ongoing. There's no actual fixated resolution on these things. I know they did these things around me for love, but it slowly became an annoyance. It was also at times a disbelief in what I was accomplishing. I know they believe in me, but have expectations of how to live and can be impatient about certain things. So I felt that it was appropriate to share that back then, but I'm worried about being misconstrued when my family's friends share this with my relatives. I know I can't control how information is shared and must live with it. Overall, I'm happy to have this segment where I can let the audience know more about the host. Concluding thought allows me to relieve some parts of my life and can be therapeutic. I need to double think a lot about what I share and fully contextualize it without causing any misunderstandings to anybody. Hopefully, I'll be more considerate of what I tell in this segment. I hope you understand my rationale in sharing this information and that there's just so much that I want to share that I can't really do in conversating with Jonah or Sean or with any of the guests because I want you to know me in a better light. And that's today's concluding thought. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Real Print. This episode's music includes Continuum Mutation, 
courtesy of Kama, and Shimmering by Rafa Orchestra, courtesy of Epidemic Sounds. This episode is co-produced and edited by Anish Katu and Edward Frumpkin. Please check out this episode's notes and links, as well as reviews, award, and seasonal predictions and essays written by yours truly at realprint.org. That is R-E-E-L print.org. This is Edward Frumpkin signing off.